Everybody in life wants to be a somebody. We are a culture and a society that always finds ways to build up and even idolize those who are wealthy, those who have power, and those who are famous above everything else in our culture. It is always the somebodies, not the nobodies, that catch our attention and find ways to inspire us. The stories in the headlines are almost never about who it is who came in second or who it is who came in in third place. Because what we want to read about in our society and what we want to celebrate are the winning teams, the gold medalists, the person with the correct answer to that $10 million question, the woman or the man who wins the election. Whether we like and approve of those winners or not, those are the somebodies that we want to know about in our world each and every day. And I think we all know that this is how it's been really since the dawn of time. All of us human beings have been trying to find the right way to move up ourselves on that scale of importance and to get to the top of the ladder from the very start. It's certainly at the core, I think, of science and Darwin's theory of natural selection and evolution, isn't it? And even in the Bible, it is this very type of temptation, the temptation of gaining power and prestige that is used in the very beginning by the serpent to pull down Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, having open eyes and knowing the difference in good and evil might have been somewhat enticing for Adam and Eve, but to the first man and the first woman, it was knowing that they could somehow become like God, their creator. That is what tempted them so that they could be at the top of everything, physical and spiritual in the creation. That's why they eat of that tree. Much loved and respected Roman Catholic priest and writer Henry Nouwen once pointed out that ever since this very moment, at the very beginning of the Bible and the story of creation, we as God's people have continued to be tempted by this self-want for power and prestige. Henry Nouwen writes in his book, In the Name of Jesus, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. I don't know about you, but I think that Nowen could not have been more accurate. For this theme not only runs throughout the Bible and throughout human history and throughout science, but it is also almost always at the very center of those things we struggle with in our personal lives. And so with that said this morning in our reading from the Gospel of Mark, can we really be all that surprised or excessively judgmental when we hear of James and John, two apostles of Jesus, sneaking up on Jesus when the other apostles aren't within hearing distance and trying to seal their own personal place of power and importance in what they think will be the new Messiah's earthly kingdom. Although that brashness may not be exactly the way we in the South would like to act, we completely must be able to understand and feel the motive behind it. 
Remember, even though Jesus has been trying throughout the gospel to redirect this traditional understanding of who the Jewish Messiah will be, all of the apostles, until the moment when Jesus is finally arrested and taken away, will carry with them the vision of Messiah being the next King David, the one who will finally overthrow and run out the Roman oppressors and set up the Jewish kingdom again. And if Jesus is going to be a king, if he's going to be a regal somebody, then who wouldn't want to ensure their own high place on the council or in the cabinet? So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of a poor fisherman from Galilee, are making their move this morning in Mark chapter 10. Grant us to sit, O Lord, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. If they can just assure themselves of those most important of seats at the king's table, there is no question that they too can become the next somebody. And again, before we call these two men out on this self-centered power play, if we were there in place of James and John and we had our moment with this person that we saw to be a future messianic king, wouldn't we make the same move? How many of us with children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or beloved children of our friends haven't already been willing to do something very similar to this very story for the good of one or more of them and for our own appreciation and acclamations. This very same story of James and John, I think some of you probably remember, actually appears as well in the Gospel of Matthew. But in Matthew's Gospel, it isn't James and John who make their request of Jesus. It's their mama. She's the one in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, who manages to catch Jesus alone and then tries to get her sons into that special position on the Jesus team. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of all the times I myself have tried to put in a good word or do something accommodating to help either my two older daughters or the children of my friends to get into something that they are in competition for, when I think about that myself, it changes my whole view of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And really, when we think about it in this world, we are all constantly being driven, aren't we? Driven hard to find these ways to make this same move for ourselves and our lives and in our careers. Certainly, I have to tell you, being a priest doesn't really protect either myself or Mother Lisa. Our work in the church today is just as fertile a soil as any for the seeds of ambition to take root and to overtake us. I have to tell you, just last night, another good friend I went to seminary with was elected the new bishop of Arizona. That's a pretty big step for a church that names itself after that position of bishops. As frightening as it can be called, it is to be called to be a bishop. There's no question that for those of us who wear clergy collars, we see that as quite a move up the ladder of success. Yet even when we aren't chosen to wear a purple shirt, 
It is still so easy to assume that our ordained relationship with God must translate into something else, some sort of holy entitlement or spiritual power that we hold over and above others. Just as we hear this morning at the beginning of our reading from the letter to the Hebrews, every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. If we could only stop there and not read the next few important verses, verses that are there to remind those of us in the clergy that we too have just as many sins of our own to confess and to seek atonement for, we could easily read that passage and get carried away by the perceived glory that we carry in our priesthood. And when that glory and holiness becomes a clergy's main focus, when the world's values begin intermixing with the sacred, then the witness to the gospel, that which is our true and most important calling, can be dangerously threatened. How many stories are we hearing daily in the news about clergy in America and in Europe that are exposing this evil vividly? Brothers and sisters, Jesus' response to James and John in the gospel this morning challenges all of that within the fallen world, which we are born into and which pushes us to strive for, especially in our longing to be somebody in the eyes of the world and of our culture. Jesus begins his answer this morning in Mark's gospel by this question that he asked of James and John themselves. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. In short, Jesus is asking them one thing and one thing only. And that is, do all of you really understand what it is you're asking me to do and what it requires of you? Jesus then takes that moment to call all of his disciples together and he delivers to the 12 as plainly as he can the true instruction of Christian life and Christian love. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, doesn't this take our world's vision of power and prestige and turn it absolutely on its head? For the cup from which Jesus will drink is a cup that is of self-emptying love, the giving of one's own life totally for others. How hard is it for us as human beings to ever be able to accomplish that in our lives today? So then the baptism in which Jesus is baptized, in which we are called, must become nothing less than the death and burial of this fallen world of sin and material power, followed by the beginning of the resurrection of God's intended world. That first world begun at creation, which is a world that will be based entirely on God's plan of justice, of generosity, of love and of joy. Jesus is saying to his disciples then and to all of us now, his disciples today, that to be a true somebody, we must be willing to put our wants and our needs aside and start putting other bodies first.
And Jesus himself will become the first and greatest example of this which will restart the world by his own giving of his life on the cross in order to save the lives of all. This is that ransom Jesus is talking about in verse 45 this morning. The very basis of which is called substitutionary atonement theology in our faith and has begun to encompass the heart of our Christian teaching from the very beginning. We find it in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul, in the letters of Peter and John and to the Hebrews and in the writing of the early church mothers and fathers. Substitution in this case, meaning that one is being substituted for the penalty and the wrongdoing committed by others in order to atone or to make amends or reparations for those others who are rightly facing penalization, hardship, and imprisonment. For Christians, Jesus makes that substitution in order to correct that which was first directed, misdirected in that story of Adam and Eve we heard at the beginning in the story of Genesis and creation. For us as Christians, it is the greatest story ever told that Jesus Christ came among us to show God's love the most completely by giving up totally himself over to death in order that death and sin might finally begin to be overthrown for all of us to maintain and to find hope. That Jesus might become the new first man, the new Adam, and bring all of us, God's intended children, back into the finale of God's creation story that begins in Genesis when Jesus creates the world and he looks at it and he says, this world is good. Jesus holds out to James and John and to the rest of his apostles and to you and me this morning a roadmap to becoming the somebody that we are really intended to be. That roadmap points first to us becoming servants and giving up ourselves as Jesus did for those around us who are in desperate need of light in this dark and fallen world. I want to leave you with one last quote that comes from one of my favorite sermons of all time. A sermon that was given 50 years ago this year in Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. That great sermon that's entitled The Drum Major Instinct, which was written and preached by that great hero of American Christianity, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Reverend King says this, Jesus gave us in these passages of Scripture a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. And this morning, the thing that I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And you too can be that servant. Brothers and sisters, we can only be truly great 
by becoming that very servant. Will you be a somebody, the somebody God truly created you to be? Let us follow Jesus and not seek to be served, but to serve first. For the ransom, brothers and sisters, has been paid. We have the freedom. Let us have the strength to move forward and change this world and bring about the kingdom that Christ intended. Amen.